Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and today we kick off our four-part series of Back to School podcasts. Back to School is BioCentury's signature issue. We've been doing it every year since Karen Bernstein and Dave Flores founded BioCentury nearly 30 years ago. Back to School is the forward-looking package that looks at an issue of broad relevance across the biopharma ecosystem. It's a must-read for drug developers, BD teams, investors, regulators, payers, essentially everyone in the biopharma ecosystem. The 2021 Back to School focuses on accelerated approval. Accelerated approval helps drugs get to patients faster for severe diseases with no alternatives, using less data than normal, on the condition that data collection continues after the regulatory agency grants expedited approval, and the drug can be withdrawn. This pathway has been copied all over the world. Joining me to discuss accelerated approval are Simon Fishburn, editor in chief, Selena Koch, executive editor, Steve Osden, Washington editor. Simone, what are the issues around accelerated approval and what is the future like? Look, there are two opposite views of accelerated approval, specifically FDA's path, and both of them are true. On the one hand, it has been a huge success in cancer. It's basically revolutionized that disease. The pathway has been copied all over the world. FDA introduced its pathway in 1992. Europe's EMA introduced exceptional approvals in 1995, I think. Then in 2006, added a conditional approval pathway. And in the last sort of four to seven years, we've seen Japan introduce a pathway, China introduce a pathway, and the UK as well. And all of these agencies are signed up to the principle of this idea of conditional approval, getting drugs to patients faster, as you pointed out, on the grounds of post-market evidence. The other way of looking at it is it's been an underperformer. It's been fantastic for cancer. It's done little for almost any other disease. It was introduced for HIV in 1992, as I said, and it did do a lot for HIV. But really, in the last decade, it's been all about cancer. On top of that, and we will get into this, it's been mired in controversy. There's just been controversy after controversy. And quite often, those controversies are actual outliers, but they still cloud the whole view of accelerated approvals. And there are congressional investigations into recent decisions and so on. Coming back to your question about the future, actually, back to school finds a pretty optimistic future. In this vision, you want to see it commonplace in a range of diseases, for example, complex ones where progression is slow and trials are really long, like they are in neurodegeneration, some autoimmune diseases, liver disease, but also applicable in rare genetic diseases where there are a lot of new therapeutic modalities. And these sort of have functional cures and surrogate endpoints built in. We think that when you look at it, the confirmatory trials shouldn't really just be an obligation, a box for companies to check. These could actually become a springboard for innovation. 
A third part of this is that we believe that expedited approvals can also become a platform for innovative pricing models based on value-based payment and for regulatory flexibility so that regulators and payers together can really control market access or shape market access to get the right patients to the right drugs. Steve, though, I have painted the rosy picture. Why don't you tell us what are the biggest gripes? Companies, regulators, payers, everybody's got gripes. Well, so look, the 800-pound gorilla in the room has got to be the Adjuhelm aducanumab decision, FDA's decision to grant accelerated approval that Adjuhelm has caused tremendous consternation. In the biopharma world, privately, many executives say that they thought that the decision was not warranted. Payers are incensed about it. Political opponents of FDA in Congress have raised issues with it. But I think that in many ways, you could say that's an outlier. But really, patients, drug developers, regulators, payers, they told us about problems at each of the three legs of the accelerated or conditional approval pathways. The generation of pre-market evidence of efficacy and safety, post-market confirmation of clinical benefit, and adjustment of access based on post-market data, which can range from converting to full approval, narrowing approval, or expanding an indication, or withdrawing it. One of the main complaints that companies have is inconsistency. FDA has been extremely flexible. As I said, many people would say far too flexible, and granting accelerated approvals to Adjuhelm for Biogen for Alzheimer's and Sarepta's Duchenne muscular dystrophy drugs. On the other hand, other divisions and offices have set the bar much higher for granting accelerated approval. And in some cases, FDA has agreed on accelerated approval requirements. Companies have done the requirement, the required development program, the studies and analyses, and later FDA has changed its requirements, forcing companies to do new studies or new analyses at great expense and also delaying patients' access to potentially effective drugs. Payers believe that FDA has granted accelerated approval to drugs that are essentially placebos and that companies have got free reign to charge a great deal for them during the time when they're determining whether they actually provide the clinical benefit that they promise. Patients are angry and confused. For example, ALS patients are incensed. They say, look, Adjuhelm got accelerated approval based on data that many people believe was really sketchy and that there are ALS drugs that have data that's at least as good as that. And they want more action. They want some of these ALS drugs to get accelerated approval because they believe, one, that they have some promise, and two, they think that once some drugs have gotten approval, even if it's for small benefit, that will create incentives for investors to invest in the space and generate new drugs that are going to be more effective and they have a tremendous need. Right. I just want to make the point that for Adjuhelm, which was approved for Alzheimer's disease, of course, one of the things I heard is people saying, look, FDA has punted the decision to payers. They're saying, we'll approve it. It's up to payers. Payers aren't happy with that. And so you do end up with this cycle of uh, pass the buck for the difficult decision. Well, and the other thing about that is there's an axiom, which is that when people say it's not the money, it's the principle of the thing, it's the money. It's right? the money. So that's what it is with Adjuhelm. The payers say that they're incensed because they believe that there isn't good data demonstrating that Adjuhelm will actually help patients. But what they're really incensed about is the price tag on it. If Biogen had set the price much, much, much lower, I think that, and I've been told by payers and by consultants who speak with payers, that they wouldn't have any problem with it. 
Well, I would call Aduhelm an outlier. I'd like to take a step back as, Selena, I know that you and the rest of the team have really been digging into the data, and I'd just like to get a sense of what the actual numbers around accelerated approval are. Yeah, well, we really rolled up our sleeves for this one and got into a lot of numbers. The project was highly satisfying because numbers can be very grounding. They can cut through a lot of noise, and there's been a lot of that recently. And it turns out there are some misconceptions floating around out there. First is the heap of news stories in the last few months alleging that accelerated approval isn't working because very large numbers of these approvals just languish for years. They never convert to full approval or get withdrawn. And they'll cite numbers north of 50% still pending or something. What's misleading about that is that the first thing we noticed in the numbers is that the pathway is getting more highly used over time. The numbers of accelerated approvals have been going up. So there's a disproportionate number of these approvals in the last two, three, four years. So if you, for instance, give companies, say, some time to complete confirmatory trials, which do take time, and just look at everything that was approved before 2017, the vast majority of those have been resolved. So 76% have received full approval, 11% have been withdrawn, leaving 13% still pending. The other thing we looked at is how long it takes to convert. So the median time to convert to a full approval in the US is just a little over three years. And in Europe, with their conditional marketing authorization pathway, it's, it's also just about three years, which doesn't seem on the face of it so unreasonable. And then if you look at the spread of accelerated approvals, 75% of them are converted within five years and over 80% if you go up to six years. What about in cancer, Selena? Yeah, so one of the interesting things that came out of the cancer approval data is just how routine accelerated approval has become for cancer therapies. So both standard and accelerated approvals in cancer have been on the rise in recent years, but especially accelerated approvals. And it's gotten to the point where they're equal in number often, many years. And in the first half of 2021, accelerated approvals actually outnumbered standard approvals two to one. I believe there were eight accelerated approvals and four standard approvals in the first half. So it's really becoming the de facto pathway almost in cancer. Yes. It's really the first disease area where it has been so routinely used, which is what we're calling for in our stretched vision for other diseases. So you have to have the pathway down. You have to know what your endpoints can be in order to get to that place. And when you break it down, what's the influence to that? How do you look at whether that means that drugs are getting sooner to patients? Yeah, well, we looked at the phase of the data that supported accelerated approvals. So we broke them down that way. We found that the vast majority of the accelerated approvals for cancer were based on phase two data, which I guess won't, probably won't surprise people. What might be slightly more surprising is that the number of accelerated approvals based on phase one data or phase one slash two trial outnumbered those based on phase three data, three to one. So there's a heavy skewing towards early phase studies supporting approvals, which some people you know, say, well, that just means that there's a lot of uncertainty about whether these drugs works. And yes, that's true, but that's also the point of the pathway, getting drugs to patients faster. And just a couple more things on that. We saw, as we've talked about, the numbers are rising. There's actually sort of a glut coming. A lot of accelerated approvals, both in Europe and the US, 
in the last few years. But the numbers in Canton in particular really started to grow. What was it, 2012, 2014? What, what were the sort of forces and drivers behind that, Selena? Yeah, a few things. So in 2012, there was legislation passed that created breakthrough designation and many of the therapies who received breakthrough designation, which is for drugs that stand to promise to offer benefit over existing therapies. A lot of these are eligible for accelerated approval. And there are a few other changes in there that just made application of accelerated approval a bit more broad. And then at the same time, you have all of these scientific advances. So a lot of the momentum is around science. The now the ability to tap the immune system to treat cancer, you know, that was on the rise just then. And of course, targeted therapies. So I think one place where we've seen a lot of progress in personalized medicine or, or targeted therapies for cancer is in non-small cell lung cancer, where the early accelerated approvals were just for like general populations, but then you see the shift towards biomarker-defined populations several of them for ELK-positive cancers, and then other biomarkers followed. So, Steve, those are sort of macro-level drivers, but you spoke to Dr. Richard Pazda at FDA. How much do you think that his advocacy, his being a champion, has been an influence in the success of accelerated approval in cancer? Well, I think a tremendous amount of credit has to go to Dr. Pazda. He's the director of the Oncology Center of Excellence. And he and his team have really done a tremendous amount of work to make the accelerated approval pathway work for cancer drugs. And I think as a result of that, hundreds of thousands of people got access to drugs years earlier than they would have in the absence of an accelerated approval pathway. And there were drugs that were approved that turned out to be highly effective that probably wouldn't have ever been approved. If in the absence of an accelerated approval pathway. So I think it's it's saved and extended and improved the quality of lives of hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people in the United States. At the same time, when I spoke with Dr. Pastor, he was quite open about the fact that he believes that there are ways that the accelerated approval pathway can, and he believes should be improved. One of the things that he talked about was the story around PD-1 drugs and the difficulty FDA's had in persuading companies to withdraw indications when studies fail to confirm clinical benefit from some of the indications. What Dr. Pazner told me is he said that the PD-1 story, quote, ripped the bandage off many of the problems with accelerated approval. And what he actually advocated, and he said that this was his personal opinion, not FDA policy, was that he thinks that the United States should move accelerated approval to make it more like the conditional approval pathway in Europe with pre-scheduled reviews to determine if programs are on, are on track to develop the data that's needed to confirm clinical evidence and also to review whether they should remain on the market. Steve, were there parts of the pathway that were introduced that, that didn't turn out how they intended when they designed it? Yeah, so Dr. Pastor talked to me about something that's a little bit wonky to get into all the details of it, but basically accelerated approval is only available for conditions, for indications for which there isn't an available therapy. And what FDA did some years ago was that they decided that any drug that's being marketed under accelerated approval will not be considered an available therapy. And one of the motivations for doing that was that it would create an incentive for companies to convert their accelerated approvals to full approvals, because once they get full approval, then their competitors wouldn't be able to get accelerated approval for the same indications. 
But what Dr. Pazner said is that it hasn't really worked out to do that. And it's created problems because in many cases, the drugs that get accelerated approval become the standard of care. At the same time, other companies, or even the same company, can get accelerated approval for drugs for those same conditions, even though there really are quite effective therapies that are available for those patients. So it's a kind of an anomaly. It's something that he thinks should be changed, could be changed. And I think that's something that FDA could do on its own administrative. Although I suppose you could argue that um, you don't know if how effective that available therapy is, right? Because the uncertainty that's inherent in an accelerated approval, does that weigh uh, into the thinking at all? I guess it does. But, you know, there are accelerated approvals and there are accelerated approvals. There's some where the efficacy is quite clear. And the reason that they've got accelerated approval, for example, is that it's going to take years to generate survival data, overall survival data, for example. And if that's the case, then you know that something's working and something's working really well. And ironically, the reason, one of the reasons why it's difficult to collect that data to actually demonstrate clinical benefit is because it works so well either it's going to take a very long time to get overall survival data, or no one's willing to create a trial testing it against another drug because the drug's so effective. And you can't have a separate rule for the ones that whose efficacy are a little less clear. So one of the other things that Dr. Pazder said is that he thinks that there's a really a mistaken, the mistaken ideas about the way that people conceive of accelerated approval. One of those mistakes, he thinks, is an overemphasis on surrogate endpoints. He called for a banishing of the term surrogate endpoints, at least for cancer, and said that the vast majority of accelerated approvals in cancer are based on what he considers to be interim clinical endpoints. And that's the proper way to think of it. And to think of accelerated approval really as a way of adjusting the risk-benefit calculation to allow drugs with more risk onto the market and with post-market data collected to determine whether that risk was justified or not. Yeah, well, one of the things that struck me about his comments around surrogate endpoints was just that historically the term surrogate endpoint meant a validated surrogate endpoint that could predict clinical benefit and therefore support a full approval. So porting that term into the accelerated approval pathway where you have a reasonably likely standard to predict clinical benefit so some amount of confusion around approval standards, right? Which there's a lot of confusion around approval standards with, as we were saying before, some divisions showing a lot of flexibility and others where companies are, are just saying, can you please set standards that are clearly different from full approval? The terminology is not a huge contributor to that, but it might play into it. And it also, as you said, it creates some of the inconsistency with an FDA. I spoke with very senior officials at FDA who said that they believe that the accelerated approval pathway has really gone off the deep end and it's gone to a place where it really shouldn't be because they believe that accelerated approval should be reserved for drugs where there's been a demonstration of efficacy based on a validated surrogate endpoint. What Dr. Pastor's view is that if there's a validated surrogate endpoint, then the drug should be able to get full approval based on that. So there's a kind of a dispute within FDA itself over that. I think that's what makes it very difficult for drug developers, this level of inconsistency. And I think there's also a fear that there could be some kind of congressional oversight that actually ends up winding the clock backwards instead of forwards. And as we've talked about, Back to School is going to lay out a vision for 
what accelerated approvals and conditional approvals around the world could do for drug development, not rein it in, but actually expand it. One of the key things to making that happen is increased transparency. One of the reasons that accelerated approval has been so successful in cancer is that FDA has been very transparent about its endpoints. It publishes lists online of what endpoints have been used for accelerated approval of cancer drugs. It holds meetings to discuss and to get scientific consensus and buy-in on endpoints before they're used to grant accelerated approval. And other parts of FDA have not been as transparent about that. It hasn't been as upfront. Again, to use the example of Agihelm, FDA actually had and still has on the books a guidance saying that the endpoints that it used to approve Agihelm are not acceptable for accelerated approval for an Alzheimer's drug, yet it did it. So I think that one of the things that Congress should do and that FDA should do on its own, but if it doesn't, Congress should require that they do it, is to have a great deal more flexibility and public input and scientific input about the acceptable endpoints for accelerated approval. Well, excellent discussion for our first of four back to school podcasts. Thank you, Steve, Selena, and Simone. That's all we have time for today. All of our back to school content can be found on our website, biocentury.com. On tomorrow's pod, we'll zoom in on the first part of the accelerated approval pathway gaining approval. On Wednesday, we'll focus on generating the confirmatory evidence. And then Thursday, we'll talk about the third stage, modifying decisions based on the trials. On Friday, we'll wrap the package when we publish our overarching essay, which ties it all together. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.